Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhudasa Udang Saranga Chami Damang Saranga Chami Sanang Saranga Chami Dutyanti Udang Saranga Chami Dutyanti Damang Saranga Chami Dutyanti Sanang Saranga Chami Tatyanti Urang Saranga Chami Tatyanti Damang Saranga Chami Tatyanti Sanam Saranga Chami This completes the going to the prerequisites. Panyatipada Varamani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precepts to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. Adina dana Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Kamesu Michachara Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada Varamani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precept to refrain from wrong speech. Sura Mareya Maja Padatana Varamani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that cause terror. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortunes of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to practice loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence.
Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with love and kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you very much and good evening. So, there's so many things that I could talk about. You'll have to help me decide which one. Perhaps you've had some Dharma question that you've really been puzzling about. Perhaps not. <laughs> Related question. I, I start to have a whole body pain. Yeah. It's getting serious. Knee pain, back pain. You started to have pain all over your body. I mean, back, knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a couple of days passed, uh, do intensive meditation, mm-hmm. and the physical started to react. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost everybody. Is there? Are you doing anything different in the way that you sit? No, because at home, the most I do is three hours, three times a day. Here is almost all day long. Yeah, and is that the same for you? That it's just the longer sitting that is. Yeah, longer yeah. sitting. Yes. On the back bone is getting better. At the same time, it's getting painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm sitting here. <laughs> 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 I can also pour anymore. <laughs> Neck, anybody? Shoulder, back? A little bit of tension yeah. after a while. <laughs> She's young. Flexible. <laughs> 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 well, this is one of the things that uh, does that does happen, um, and, and as always, I, I say, you know, if if there is any if there is any simple way to make a physical adjustment, you know, do so, but don't don't waste a lot of time uh, just constantly trying to change the way you sit because. Uh, when you sit for long periods of time, pain does develop. Now, what you may find hard to believe, but a certain a certain degree of this pain is not actually physical. It's really coming from uh, uh, it's a it's a direct result of the meditation. It's part of just the way that our minds tend to resist this activity uh, of sitting still and. Uh, practicing meditation for long periods of time and it will pass away. Uh, you've done long retreats before, right? Yes, I did. Same thing? Um, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. after three or four days, uh, the, the pains is so unbearable, but uh, after four to five days, kind mm-hmm. of uh, Yes, uh, it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. 
Yes. Uh, I was just wondering if, uh, because since we aren't doing uh, Qigong anymore, uh, if anybody happens to know yoga or any yeah. other physical activity, so we get, we, I personally don't, but if there is anybody, it might be helpful for us all to engage in them. This would be a, yeah, a very, very good idea, and uh, ideally there should be a, a period of exercise every day, and we're, we were so lucky to have uh, a, a Qigong leader, and so unfortunate that he couldn't continue. So, do, do you yeah. Uh, well, uh, if we were to do yoga, uh, preferably we'll be indoors. That means we need yeah. to move the yeah, yeah, You guys. It would have to be in here, and you have to move things around. Right, and then. If we occupy the same time as the Qigong, then you won't disturb anybody else's meditation. Yes, that would be the right time to do it. Well, that's right. And the pain is that's true. The pain will stop. And... Uh, Probably within another day or two, most of you will find it much easier to sit. But the exercise, the exercise will be helpful, and it is a good idea. And I don't know if there's anyone here. Yes. Yeah, I I I will discuss with someone and try to see if I can arrange. If I can arrange, I will announce. Okay. okay. All right. That would be good. You know, even somebody who would lead everyone in the Qigong warm-up exercises, or uh, you know, that would that would be enough to make a huge difference. So, so okay. everybody uh, prefer to do yoga or qigong? Uh, oh. Everybody's different, I guess. We could do both, you know. Could have, <laughs> could have one group do yoga and the other group stand outside and do some, some kind of qigong. So that's fine. I, I wrote notes from Russell's um, qigong so that I would have them for myself. <laughs> so I actually wrote down what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it. I mean, I I don't want to lead anybody doing yoga, but um, if I could do yoga here during the same time as Qigong, uh, anybody who's interested could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, Because what if, well, personally, I would prefer to have the place to meditate. But if I'm the only one, then it's okay. Oh, is there? Have you been meditating in here before the uh, right. uh, during the meal break? I think that takes priority. Yeah. Um, but what about at nine thirty, which is when we were? That's what we were talking about. She says she. Oh, that's the break. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there's someplace else that we could do yoga that could be. Uh, of course, we have beds everywhere, don't we? <laughs> she offers a lot of same benefits without taking a lot of room. What's that? Uh, question, uh, sorry, suggestion. She said I can do meditation in our room, so... Okay. If she's the only one who can yoga, we can do yoga here. She can do meditation at our room. And when you've been in here in the morning, have you been the only one usually? Uh, I think sometimes you are here, but not. Yeah. It's only recently because now breakfast activity is lower. Somebody is washing the dish for me, so I can. Mm-hmm. But this morning, I was the only one. Okay. Is there anyone else that uh, 
likes to meditate in here before 10 o'clock in the morning. How long is yoga going to take? What do you think? Uh, if, if just you warm up the body and you, you know, just loosen things up, no more than 20 minutes. Yeah. Oh, 20 minutes is short. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we'll keep our schedule the same and the exercise period between 9.30 and, and 10. And, and so if some of you want to come in here and do yoga, okay, and then others want to go out, stand outside and with the trees and with, uh, uh, I mean, some of us will do qigong and uh, some of us will do yoga. Okay. 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 <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Back to Dharma. Okay. Yeah. What do you think about the Shiolen uh, Chandina Buddha's in practice? Well, that's uh, what do I personally think? I I, I personally would think it's uh, it would be much better to become enlightened in this lifetime and do the practices that are going to lead to uh, enlightenment in in this lifetime. That's my personal view. But uh, as many people who feel that uh, they would they would like to uh, you know, chant the name of Amida Buddha and be uh, reborn in uh, Tavitamsa heaven so that they could achieve enlightenment there, you know, that's fine with me. But <laughs> but uh, my perspective in my life has been. It's the it's the suffering of this life that I want to overcome, and uh, it's the the uh, true understanding that I want to achieve, and even more than that, it's being able to do something in this in this life to help other people to achieve liberation in this life. What, so. what about uh, if we take the chanting of Buddha's name as kind of meditation practice? As a meditation practice, uh, it, it is a meditation practice that can do a lot for uh, calming the mind and, and focusing the mind. Uh, it's to the degree that it helps you to develop a calm, focused mind, you might be able to do some Vipassana practices uh, using that degree of concentration that it gives you. but. Uh, I personally think that that's about the extent of what you would get from that practice is a, uh, a calm state of mind. Uh, not necessarily this, the, the same kind of concentration that we're talking about developing here, but it would it does calm the mind. Chanting does, is very calming. Uh, so. Yes? Oh, and yeah. 老师我一定会想办法今天开悟如果我不行你下次来一定要找到我<笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><
case. Okay. Please yeah. remember, find her and me too. We, we have an agreement. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, Michael. Uh, I have a question about uh, the energy flow to the top portion of the the body. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like um, if the energy doesn't, you know, one way or another, come up and permeate the body or at the very least go to the top of the head, um, the quality of the mindfulness and, and the vividness of the mindfulness is, is, is a lot less. And sometimes the energy will come in a surge and sometimes it, it comes, in, comes up very, very calmly and mm-hmm. pervasively to the whole body. But the thing is, uh, I, I sense a huge difference uh, in terms of the quality of the mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with that, but on the other hand, the thing that I would like to point out is not everyone even experiences this movement of energy, and people who don't still uh, experience very, very profound states of of, uh, concentration with very strong mindfulness with which they are able to uh, achieve achieve liberating insight. So even without this flowing energy... uh, one can achieve very clear vividness in the observation. Yes, but let us uh, say, even without being aware of this movement of energy, because it's really difficult to say, when when so many people experience a movement of energy in the body that is so strongly associated with uh, the development of concentration and with the arising of joy, uh, you know, and then other people don't, uh, all that we can do is say, well, perhaps for one reason or another, they're not aware of it in the same way, and to the same degree. So, I see. Yeah. But in as much as if you are a person who has a clear experience of these energy movements, once again, in general, part of that experience will be that upward movement that uh, that's very noticeable and that is sort of a culmination of the development of that process. So, on the other hand, some people have trouble with that, and you know they feel a lot of energy moving in the body from the from the core to the periphery back and forth, and uh, it seems to serve the same purpose. And at some point. Their body becomes saturated with uh, with uh, that PT energy too. So, um, hold up. Sorry. Okay. Um, one sense uh, I see a direct relationship between the energy going to the upper part of the body and mm-hmm. clear clarity of, of observation. Uh, would would it be advisable to? to try to give rise to this energy and you know it's almost like another kind of manipulation too because the energy follows the intention a lot of the times mm-hmm. not all the time but most of the time it does um, let me just point out that we're really talking about meditation rather than dharma which is alright but we'll, we'll get to dharma here soon hopefully. oh ok sorry but um, what I would say is for anyone who experiences energy movement, primarily just let it develop. Then the next thing is if the if the movement of that energy 
is creating any sort of problem or distraction because it seems to be obstructed or it's producing strong movements or things like that. That's an appropriate time to try to work with it and uh, perhaps, as you say, manipulate it somewhat, primarily so that you can go back to the practice without uh, uh, being distracted. And then hopefully that, that energy will continue doing what it needs to do without you needing to do anything. But if you are particularly sensitive to the energy and you find that spending some uh, part of your meditation effort on directing that energy to achieve a particularly uh, powerfully clear state of mind is beneficial, then by all means do that. That would be that would be a sensible and reasonable thing to do. But I don't want it to sound like everybody should start looking for energy experiences or if they experience uh, sort of electrical vibration in their body that they begin trying to cause it to rise up their spine. <clears throat> when it begins to rise up the spine and you're not really ready for it, that's when it creates a lot of discomfort and problems and distraction. So if you have energy experiences, as much as possible, just continue with your concentration practice and let them develop on their own, at least and unless they start creating a problem. Okay? Yeah. Um, can I talk about meditation or the Dharma? Um, you can, but I was, I was really hoping that I have this opportunity in the evenings to... Uh, okay. to But maybe everybody's more interested in meditation, and here I am trying to make things go in a way that doesn't work. Oh, I, I like to listen to the dog. <laughs> What's that? I, I like you to speak about the dog. <laughs> okay. So, and, and like I say, there's so much to speak about with regard to the Buddha Dharma that. Uh, It's hard for me to decide where to begin. <laughs> That's what I was really looking for, was where there was some question that could help be a beginning point for the discussion. What we did talk about uh, so far was the Four Noble Truths, and we talked somewhat about the Eightfold Path, but not every part of it in great detail. Um, in a logical progression, we might next talk about, for example, the three characteristics of impermanence, uh, uh, not-self and uh, uh, satisfactoriness. Um, but it can go any direction. We could talk about karma, we could talk about... We could go back to the Eightfold Path and talk about the uh, uh, virtue, and, and actually we could talk about the practice of the perfection. So there's all kinds of directions we could take. Did you have a particular suggestion? Uh, that you would? Uh, not... Yeah, personal preference, then I have... Because I, I would like to have a, a few minutes of very short statements, and maybe that will lead into the selfless. But I don't know if that selflessness are you mm-hmm. interested to talk about tonight? Uh, selflessness. Uh, no. Yeah, I just want to uh, explain because I I don't want to because I lack of the uh, ability to express well and cause some misunderstanding mm-hmm. for my uh, statement this noon time. And uh, 
I do have a breakthrough, but I just want to explain that in this field, I already work on selflessness for several months. And conce uh, uh, conceptually, I, try, uh, I understand uh, that they talk about selflessness and make a lot of sense intellectually to me. But however, feeling me, I still feel strongly I have that sense of identity and I don't know how to get away. And this few days of this retreat, in fact, I concentrate on watching mine, you know, observe the mind very in detail level. And this morning, just kind of uh, through the, the, the observing the, the mind, and I come out some question and ask the teacher and give me some clarification. A very interesting thing I just want to mention to you is that maybe that can help him every one of us to, to, to practice Dharma. Is when I concentrate with that and the, after the interview and I said they'll meditate, and I, I, strange things happen is the, the mind work on itself, you know, and link the, 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 the observing mind and the, uh, the, the selflessness, the self identity, that part, you know, and I. It, just like I want to mention, it's like a teacher say that if I didn't do it, you know, it's not me. I just kind of that awareness is for the, the things happen and connect itself. So, so what my point is that even though sometimes we work on something, if we don't go through that, sometimes we work on other things and, and that link, you know, for us to, to realize that in some way. So just be patient and, and, and do the steps. Now give me more confidence I do the steps one by one. And, and sometimes the, those things will, will, will connect. You know, I don't know when, but for the circumstance ready and the, uh, every condition ready and that will. And, and, and I certainly feel very clearly I didn't do it. You know, it's that things happen. So I just want to explain to everybody, and I appreciate you ask a question and clarify, because I, I'm afraid I jump in something, ex my, my excitement and, and, and to report, I want to get the teacher's feedback and give us, give everybody kind of a strange feeling. So I want to explain that it's my experience. So maybe you will experience that similar path or even more strange way, but, but that will happen. I don't know how it happened, I still don't know, but it happened, I just witnessed that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, but thinking the meditate itself, no, not really. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. So she is asking her that feels like she was very excited and happy about and Sophia's question to, to you was typically when people um, break through have breakthroughs they, they typically are 
Typically, people act more uh, cautious. Uh, people's first reaction is to be more cautious and alert, um, aware, mm-hmm. more more awareness. She doesn't understand why she doesn't understand why she was so excited and happy. <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is Deborah's personality. She's <laughs> that's the kind of person she is. She, she's very eager to uh, to learn and discover these things and when she does she gets really excited about it. <laughs> so you know whereas uh, someone else might uh, react differently uh, also Endeavor's uh, practice involves a lot of strong strong concentration there's a lot of meditative joy and happiness that is the flavor of her practice all the time and so uh, and this is the way it is. Insights tend to, when, when you have insight, it tends to bring out that joyfulness. And so was, I think it's that combination of different things, just just the way Deborah is and the fact that her practice has a really strong component of, of joy in it. And and so when, when she has an insight, those things come together and, and you see what you saw. She has tremendous enthusiasm. And, uh, and different people will... Uh, respond differently. And these very same insights for some people, uh, especially who do not have, haven't developed concentration to the point of having this uh, meditative joy and happiness, this piti sukha, as it's called, um, uh, when they don't have that, sometimes these insights can be more frightening. Than you know, rather than exciting and relieving, they can they can create uh, great di- mental discomfort. Um, the uh, people who do inside practice without developing concentration first, what's called uh, dry inside practice or, or uh, uh, sukha vipassana, yanikas, uh, uh, people who are practicing the dry inside practices. When they come to the stage where they start to have profound insights, uh, they experience a lot of uh, mental and emotional discomfort, and they, they find these insight, these same insights, frightening and difficult to assimilate. So it depends on the degree of equanimity and joy that the person has too, and that in turn depends on the kind of practice they're doing. That's why you might see different people responding in different ways. Yeah. Let's continue the question from last night. Um, my friend, and he, when he was a teenager, and he was accidentally uh, as in a meditative state. So that that state lasts like uh, several hours, mm-hmm. and uh, basically he feels he, he lost himself. Mm-hmm. So kind of conscious expansion to hold everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he kind of wake up and he just keep laughing. Mm-hmm. The reason he laughed, he said, because um, uh, the way he sees things, it's, it's 
just like uh, everything is perfect, existed. Yes. And during the process, uh, from expansion, expanded consciousness, and to uh, to wake up, he, he described that there's a kind of pattern of uh, self develops. So my question is, how human beings or sentient beings uh, psychologically or mentally built by this way, we tend to uh, think or act uh, this way. That's that's kind of self. We know that Buddhism explains that it's always karmic, it's karma, and uh, because of the ignorance. But how? Why? I think your question is, is why we have this experience of self the way we do. Consciousness of self. Mm-hmm. You know, but of course there's no no first beginning, but how we would think this way. Okay. So if I understand this correctly, basically the question is why do we have this the, the, the kind of sense of self that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what you be? Is that a way of putting the question? Where does it come from? So, but uh, if, uh, it's, it's, it's Buddhist, if Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist answer, that would be yeah, um, because we are not understanding the true nature of the, That's right. the, 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 the things. You know, we, yeah. we look at things in a different way, not as they, they really are. That, that's the immediate cause. It's because we are ignorant that we, uh, we don't see things the way they really are that we experience this. But the question, the, 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 the deeper question is, but why, why do we have this particular, why does this happen that there is this particular yeah. I, I can relate to that because before mm-hmm. that, uh, the, the self, the mm-hmm. feeling is so strong and mm-hmm. so real. You know, feel having a self. Even mm-hmm. though, Teaching is that mm-hmm. say, oh, understand, but still feeling so strong. Okay, good. This is this will be a good thing to talk about. Yes. To so. add on to that question, I just want to maybe because also say a few words about neuroscience and uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Buddhism mm-hmm. because there are so many cases of uh, you know injuries that the 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 symptom feel to me read like. What you know, Buddhism describes. Are you you thinking of Jill Bolte Taylor uh, who had the stroke? Is, is that? Uh, I I heard the story. that somebody had I don't know the name, but yeah. half of the brain was. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. And afterwards, he just, he was unsure. He wanted to recover the other mm-hmm. half of the brain. Right. Yes, that person uh, uh, was a woman. Her name was Jill oh, uh, Jill Bolte Taylor. Jill Taylor. And she was uh, she was a neuroscientist who had a stroke. And yes, she wrote a book. It's called Stroke of Insight. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So so can we um, listen to you talk? I mean, uh, all of us. Can we just uh, kind of shut up for a little bit? <laughs> the time is so precious. We really want to hear you say. Uh, yes, uh, we're, we're we're going to have a discussion about. About the uh, this this idea of, of non-self as a dharma topic, the topic of anatta or non-self, and it is in fact one of the most difficult uh, topics in all of Buddhism to grasp. Uh, 
Um, but on that topic, is there any other particular perspective that someone has in their mind? So that way, when we we're going to have a conversation about it. So if you have a perspective on that topic, please share it with us before we begin. No, I, I just kind of disappointed. Uh, how how can I jump in other uh, stage? Uh, I, I think I just start uh, this stage. The meditation stage? Or? Sorry, I didn't understand that. Stop. Needs some meditation. For the meditation. Mm-hmm. 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 Her question is Oh, please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> she feels nothing progress during her practice. She feels like she's not having supporting fast food. She feels like she's having no progress in her practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, let let us talk together, uh, you and I. You, you didn't come for a meditation interview today. I think we need to talk. And also uh, tomorrow, when we when we're discussing meditation practice as a group, you may want to be more active in in that discussion too. So, but uh, perhaps one on one, I can I can help you to to, to overcome this problem. Okay. okay. But yes, let's talk about not self. Anatta. And just to give you a little background, uh, Anatta is the negation of Atta, or in Sanskrit the word is Atman. Atta, Atman, refers to uh, what in, in English we call soul. And the idea is. Uh, it's not referring to the ego, atta. It refers to a permanent and abiding self, something that lasts forever, that's eternal, something that survives the death of the body and, and goes on and on. And at the time of the Buddha, and prior to the time of the Buddha, uh, many people were concerned with discovering the nature of this soul, arata, and it was felt that this this was how to achieve uh, liberation and salvation, because life does have this characteristic of dissatisfactoriness and suffering, and it is this self who we experience ourselves as that is the experience of that suffering. And then we see that the body dies, and the question has always been there, what happens to the person when 
the body dies and seeking for an answer to that. So this is this is what the atta that anatta is negating is about is this idea of a permanent and abiding self that might live forever in one form or another. And of course there are some teachings that say that there is a permanent abiding self which uh, is reincarnated lifetime after lifetime just like a person putting on a new suit of clothes each day. And this when the Buddha taught that there that this was a false view this was a profoundly different and new teaching because um, materials at that time there were materialists who said well this is all there is there is no soul there's nothing there's just you know there's just this life and there's nothing after this and of course there are many materialists today who hold that view many uh, it's a very common view that the, this life is all there is and uh, all you can do is uh, have as much pleasure as you can and uh, morality really means not getting caught more than anything else <laughs> do do whatever you can to gratify yourself as best you can because you're going to die in any way and none of it matters in the end. And then the opposite view to that has been there is a permanent and abiding soul and this soul might go to heaven or hell or be reborn in heaven or hells, heavens or hell or be reborn over and over again and uh, um, perhaps this perhaps this uh, permanent abiding self can escape the round of constant reincarnations and having to go through all these difficulties over and over again. Buddha took a very different perspective on things. He examined the situation of us as human beings and that we go through our lives with an experience of greater or lesser degree of dissatisfaction uh, and unhappiness and even uh, despairing acceptance of the inevitability of pain and sickness and old age and death. And his question was, can that be overcome? Is there some way to, is there some answer to this, some solution to this? Can it be overcome? And after his enlightenment, any time someone asked him, and they did on a number of occasions, you know, what is it that you teach? Because many of the other teachers of that time were teaching uh, a particular philosophy or metaphysics or a point of view. And he said, I teach only one thing. I teach... uh, uh, suffering and freedom, the way to freedom from suffering, the freedom from dissatisfaction, unhappiness. We've talked about how he taught that the cause of dukkha is craving, 
and that when there is a cessation of craving, there is a cessation of dukkha. This is the liberation within this life uh, from dukkha. Now, in addition to that, he said that someone who achieves this liberation does not need to worry about re- being reborn and uh, over and over again in an endless series of circumstances. In other words, you don't have to keep being reborn into dukkha. So that once you once you gain this knowledge that's liberating, you are completely free from that once and for all. So, the teaching of not-self, how does this fit in with that? Well, it's negating the idea that you should put all of your energy into trying to identify your true self and protect that true self. And it also negates the idea that um, that you should uh, spend your energy trying to uh, gratify and satisfy this self. This self is an illusion. This is the highest truth. Is the self that we all experience is not real. And it's the fact that it's not real that is the root ignorance that keeps, that gives craving its power and therefore that's why we suffer. So, you know, in, in the process that we were working from that life is filled with dukkha, craving causes dukkha, the cessation of dukkha is brought about by the cessation of craving, but the cessation of craving cannot be achieved until a person has overcome the ignorance that gives rise to this sense of self that we have. So let's examine this sense of self. Anatta, not self, does not mean that we are denying, uh, that doesn't mean that a person is supposed to abolish their ego. Because the ego is a psychological function of the mind. But it's to stop believing in that ego as a substantial reality and stop having all of your thoughts and feelings and actions and emotions and everything conditioned by the belief in that ego as being a substantial reality. So what are we? What is the self? And right away, when you say self, that means there's something that's not self. So let's look to discover what is ourself. Well, most clearly, I have the, the, there is this body that seems to be separate from the rest of the world, right? And as a matter of fact, I think all of us um, as children probably identified self with the body very strongly. It's it's the sort of natural way that we are. Yes? In the, in the uh, early age of uh, the boy, when a when, when child is an infant, psychologically, mm-hmm. uh, they, they don't think uh, they have very uh, distinctive 
um, self, you know, in terms of body. They developed the idea of body and stories. That's right. They started out, an infant starts out really with none of these concepts at all. And they, uh, in the development of a child, it's, it, it's not until a certain stage in development that they have any sense of self at all. That's true, or any conceptualization. But I'm starting more from the point of granted that in life we have a sense of self, even that uh, changes over time. And most of you, I, I doubt if any of you really think of yourself as your body, but nevertheless you have a really strong sense of being a self, right? Yeah, have a very strong sense of being a self. So if you can look and say, what, what is this self that I am? Uh, and most of us would probably quite easily regard the body as not the self. You know, you could, uh, you could even imagine in sort of a science fiction scenario, maybe where. Uh, your brain could be transplanted into a different body and you'd still... The, the, the self that you identify with wouldn't really be different. Right? And people have arm transplants and heart transplants and, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if you lose a leg, you don't lose part of yourself. You lose part of your body and it's really much more like something that would happen to your house or your car. Like your body is more an appendage or something that belongs to the self. When it comes to the mind now, we tend to much more strongly identify ourselves with our mind, right? And that is probably, uh, that's probably the strongest uh, attachment to the sense of self you have, is feeling that you are your mind. But even there, you know, if you, if you look into yourself and say, who am I, what, what am I, you will most likely identify uh, a group of attributes that we might call your personality or your personal self. And there will be some of those that are quite variable and quite changeable and that you wouldn't really claim to be Yourself. They more are just temporary properties and, and attributes. But there is this sense of, uh, of you as a person. Well, and, and some things that are relatively stable and unchanging. I am this kind of a person. I am, uh, I am a male or I am a female. And uh, I am more intelligent or less intelligent or uh, I am artistic, or I'm not artistic, or I'm creative, or I'm not creative, or all of these different kinds of things. And we don't need to get into the details of this, but generally we go around with sort of a vague idea in our mind that we are a self, and if we were pushed to identify that, uh, uh, that self, we, we'd start making up a list of things. But we'd have to work at it, would you not? I mean, that would be, that's sort of, if, if, if you had the task to come up with a, uh, a, an explanation or a description of who you are, that would be a challenging task, would it not? Difficult to decide. 
Well, in the process of making that list, you'd be inventing, you'd be inventing a self. And if you look at your behavior and how you live your life, you realize you're always going around inventing yourself. When you are with your parents, you're one kind of self. If you're married and have children, when you're at home with that family, you're a different kind of self. When you're at work, you're yet another kind of self. When you're socializing with your friends, there's another self involved. Um, Most of us, as uh, young people, have had the experience of you're attracted to somebody and you go out on a date with them. And what do you do? You spend a lot of time trying to create a particular kind of self, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. We, we don't think about it too much, but we try to invent a self that we think they'll like and say, this is who I am. I guess with the idea that by the time they find out it's not quite true, it'll be too late. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> or even better, what happens is... Uh, and sometimes we meet somebody, enter into a relationship with them, and we really want to be the kind of self that they think they are. There's a friend of mine has uh, a sign on her door that says, God, please make me the kind of person my cat thinks I am. <laughs> and have you ever done that? Some of you, I'm sure, have uh, been in a relationship where you thought, well, if I can just become the person this person thinks I am, then wow, that'll be wonderful. I'll be, you know, that'll be a definite improvement. Or sometimes that happens. You'll get a job, and you say, "Well, I'm going to become the kind of self that this job needs. That's the kind of self I want to be because I'm going to have this job." And can you relate to these things that I'm saying? So I mean, right away we examine self, and we realize self is a mental construct. Self is a mental construct that is generated by our mind, dependent upon all kinds of different external and internal circumstances. Um, we even we even chop ourselves up inside between uh, the things that you know. I'm this kind of person, and I know I do those things sometimes, but that's not really me. Right? <laughs> And, and then we want to cut off and avoid and, and, and overcome those things. That's not really me, so I'm going to cut off that part of me and never be like that again. You've probably done that too. The self is its a mental construct. It's an invention of your mind. It's one that changes constantly. It changes from situation to situation and day to day, month to month, year to year. Uh, if you met yourself, if uh, if your self from ten years ago uh, were to show up here today, I wonder how you get along with them. <laughs> oh, it's going to have hot time. <laughs> would it would it be you? Would it be the you that you are now? Okay. So this personality self, and we're very attached to it because if somebody says something about this self. Uh, it can either make us very happy or very unhappy or angry, right? So when we, if we have a notion uh, we're a particular kind of person, 
and somebody says uh, that we're the opposite. And I, uh, you know, maybe you believe that you're a very uh, righteous and honest person, and and somebody says, well, you know, he's kind of a real dishonest and kind of a liar. Boy, you know, you really don't like that at all, right? And it's a different reaction than if you think of yourself as being kind of lazy and somebody says, well, he's kind of lazy. It's like, you might not like it that they're pointing it out, but it's a different reaction than if somebody says you're something that you don't believe you are, right? So, So we have a lot of reactions to that. Also, if you'd really like to be a particular kind of person, you know, I'd really like to be wise, and then somebody says, he's really wise, and you go, oh, makes you feel, how does it make you feel? Wonderful, right? Yeah. So we can examine Deborah tomorrow. (laughs) 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 If she never gets mad, then I believe her. (laughs) So, we have, if we examine this, on the one hand, we have this mental construct that we create and is constantly changing, but that we're very defensive of and very attached to, and uh, that we can, uh, uh, it, it can have a tremendous influence on, on our actions and our happiness and, and everything else. So that's one sense in which we experience a self. Um, And that's also a fairly easy one to look at and say, well, that's not all that real. It's, 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 it's certainly not a permanent and abiding self, right? It's not an enduring, abiding, permanent self. Yes? Um, just to play devil's advocate, if the Buddha says that the, you know, the present moment is the only real moment of the only real in reality then uh, in any given moment that self may be real because even if it is transient over time you know it's constantly continues but in any given moment all the conditions that are there that self is is a self is real right sure as the play yeah. but it's it's uh, if if uh, if you are going to completely completely take this view that the present moment is the only time is, is the only moment there is then there's there is no meaning to speaking of a permanent and enduring self uh, if, if there's another moment and another self that's still the only self there is so I, in what sense is it a problem for us in, in, in trying to understand the nature of self to adopt the view that uh, Present, I, and it's not just a view; it's a fact. The present moment is the only thing there is. But I mean, even the, the present moment is a concept. The present moment is that well, in in a sense, or the other way we could look at it is say the future and the past are concepts. You know, so and the present the present moment only has meaning as a concept if we have future and past as concepts. So we we sort of have. To have one, we have to have them all. Right. 
Which I, I suppose is uh, is the answer to that. Unless you have a concept of, 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 of future and past, then the idea of the present moment has uh, that doesn't have any meaning. It is true that the only thing there is is the present moment. But there is a certain kind of flow rather than staticness to the present moment. And we have a sense of self in it. And so we're still stuck with, with the same situation. We're, we're going to adjust the schedule and I'll talk for another 15 minutes and then uh, have a break in meditation, okay? Um, where were we here? Self. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yes, by all means, any anything, any, any question you have or doubt you have about any aspect of this, let's let's by all means talk about it and, and make it clear. Yes? I, I think self is uh, because a lot of attachment. Can people uh, re- release a, a patch mm-hmm. and can? Uh, and can uh, delete the self-image. Yes. Well, in, in a sense, you're 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 cutting down to a, a, a very essential component of this. Ultimately, less important than what we might set aside and stick the label self on is the fact that we are attached to the idea of a self. Whatever that self happens to be, we're attached to the idea of a self. And that's where, that's really the problem. Right? Because, and, and if we continue this examination, uh, we see, uh, our, in terms of past, present, and future, you know, this construct that we have we can grant that it's constantly changing, it's not permanent, it's not abiding, but nevertheless, we have an experience of continuity, which makes it real. You know, I may not be the same person I was 10 years ago, or 40 years ago, but there's a continuity there, and uh, there's a causal continuity, and I attach to it on the basis of that, because that continuity is there, makes it easy for me to attach to that. And, and you, that attachment manifests in a lot of ways, in a lot of the same ways that we've just been talking about. Um, you ever hear people telling stories about the self that they once were and the things that they did? Mm-hmm. Right? It makes them feel good, you know. And they're obviously not that self anymore. This is especially true of, uh, you know, of older people. They'll tell you about when they were younger, how wonderful they were. <laughs> and they'll take great satisfaction at it. And you'll either enjoy the story or you'll just think, hmm, I don't know why this person thinks this is so important, but <laughs> who cares? <laughs> but this is, there's this attachment to a sense of self that's based in the continuity. Okay, there's another there's another experience of selfhood that we attach to, very important, very strongly, when we experience pain or when we experience pleasure, it's the experiencer, right? It's the, uh, the, the self is who's hurting, 
or the self is who is 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 happy, and we attach to to that self. It's more difficult to see. I mean, if you look at that, it's a little more difficult to see. Well, okay, uh, that too is not self, but that. It, that's getting to where it certainly seems like itself, doesn't it? It's easy to understand. What's that? It's easy to understand, it's easy to understand but hard to do. It's a long way. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to understand, you know, yeah. this kind of analytic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But self is very strong feeling. Yeah. A lot of time it's by comparison mm-hmm. because uh, if I realize that uh, by this way I understand there's no self, mm-hmm. and my whole socialists talk to my mm-hmm. friends, and uh, they talk their story, his story, her story, and mm-hmm. uh, they have a citizen in their job, and so, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. he is what, what, and then I am mm-hmm. just like And all of that is susceptible to analysis and understanding, and analysis and understanding may not free us from it, but at least it's very susceptible to analysis and understanding. But we're getting now down to something that the experiencing self, the sense that, well, I'm the one that hurts. <laughs> I, I, everything else may be an illusion, but there's somebody hurting there, and that's who I identify with. That's, that's, there's an attachment to that. Okay? And that's very strong at the, at the, uh, at the level of feeling. Now, this takes us to to properly understand the nature of this feeling and how to deal with it. This it's a feeling of selfhood that arises as the experiencer of pleasure and pain. And I, I think I mentioned to you that this is the one thing, you know, when we use the term sentient beings, what is a sentient being anyway? What do we mean by a sentient being? Nama and Rupa together. Nama and Rupa defines an individual, and uh, part of Nama is, is Vedana, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, would we regard a, a dog as a sentient being? Yes. Right. Would we regard a lizard as a sentient being? Yes. Fish? Yes. Grasshopper? Yes. Uh, bacteria? Yes. Um, tree? No. no. Rock? No. Okay. What's the difference? At what point does something become sentient? Uh, sense or not? Um, sense, sense or not? Uh, what's that? that? I said the, the sensory organ will develop. Okay, it has a, some kind of a sense organ. Well, um, I, I would say that a being is sentient if it experiences pleasure or, or pleasantness and unpleasantness. It can experience pleasure and pain. Because depending on the kinds of sense organs, there's all kinds of beings that have all kinds of different senses and experience all kinds of different things. So if we're going to look at something that is experienced by means of sense organs, 
that is common to everything we would call sentient, I think it would be pleasantness and unpleasant. So it is our nature as a sentient being to experience pleasure and pain. And that's what we identify with, you know, at a feeling level, an emotional level, as as the, the self. The self is the self is the one that's experiencing pleasure and pain. Now, I, I hope some of you have been doing some meditation on examining uh, pleasant and unpleasant feeling that is based in the physical versus pleasant and unpleasant that is based in the mental. And reflecting on what I have said that all beings, including fully enlightened Buddhas, have an experience of pleasant and unpleasant physical sensation. So, physical pleasure and pain are inevitable, inescapable. They are a part of being a living being, a sentient being. Whether you whether you are Buddha or not, if you are a sentient being, there is physical pleasure and pain. But if you are a Buddha, what you are liberated from is any form of mental suffering and mental pain. Okay? And now let's go back to this question of the sense of self that we get in experiencing uh, pleasure and pain. If you can make the distinction between physical pain and physical pleasure as mere sensation, as a mere type of sensation, and maybe if you've had some experience in meditation that have shown you that, if you have some understanding of equanimity, and equanimity is where when physical pleasure or physical pain arise, there is no mental pleasure and pain in response to it. There is no attachment to it or pushing away of it, no attachment or aversion associated with it. Perhaps you've had sometime in your life, a few moments, uh, some circumstance where you've had that experience, or perhaps you've come close enough that you can imagine it. Now, where this sense of self that we have associated with experience of pleasure and pain, what is it rooted in? Is it rooted in mental pleasure and pain or physical pleasure and pain as mere sensation? Hmm? Okay, can you ask again? Okay. Um, and, and maybe you won't be able to answer it. Maybe, maybe you don't have the experience you need yet to do that. But the question was, we know that when we have a, a pleasant or an unpleasant experience, there's a strong sense of self associated with the experience, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is that sense of self associated with mental pain and mental pleasure 
or is it associated with physical pain and physical pleasure, or both, or is there a difference? Maybe you don't know the answer to that. Um, let's look at sensation, because when I say physical pain and physical pleasure, they are mere sensation. And uh, if you can cease to react mentally, you can discover that indeed they are mere sensation. You do have other experience of mere sensation, right? When you're doing walking meditation and you're trying to, or let's say when you're doing meditation on the breath, and you're trying to notice exactly when the in-breath begins, that's a sensation, right? Is it difficult or easy to identify that sensation? Don't you find that there are many, many sensations arising, passing away, just a continuous stream of sensations arising, passing away, arising, passing away, arising, passing away. That is the nature of all sensation. All sensation is constantly changing. It's, 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 it's impermanent. It's impermanent at, at the most minute level. It's just, it's coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, so fast. This is the nature of pleasure and physical pleasure and pain is in sensation. It is completely impermanent. Now, if you can clearly perceive pleasure and pain as mere sensation, entirely impermanent, arising and passing away, you, do you think you will have the same strong sense of identity with that sensation? I mean, the sensation of coolness as the air begins to go into your nostrils, do you attach to that as, that is self, that is I? More likely you have the experience of, there's just the sensation. There's no sense of, there's really no sense of I in there at all. There's just the experience of the sensation. It's a more neutral? It's, yeah, it's a more neutral sensation, right? But... You know, the, the sense of I-ness doesn't arise really strongly. Perhaps one of the things you might notice when you're meditating is uh, when your attention is, is uh, on one thing, there is no sense of I at all. I mean, that happens all the time. All the time. You're watching a movie and you're so engrossed in the movie that you completely forget yourself. Or your mind's wandering in meditation and you're so deeply thinking in a thought that you forget yourself. There's no sense of self. The sense of self is optional. It's not always there. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Whenever the sense of self is there, it arises as a mental object. It is a mental construct. It is a mental formation. When you have pain physical pain and you react to that with mental pain and suffering, then the identification that you experience when you say, I am suffering, that is yet another mental object that has arisen in the series. And so, uh, now when I say it is very, the idea of not-self is very 
it's not easily grasped. It's not easily discovered. But it is so crucial to discover it. But through through logical thinking and examination, we can at least uh, satisfy ourselves intellectually that indeed, although it seems so real, the feeling of self, that it's difficult to find any reality in which it is based. So this gives us hope. Um, And we just, we're, we're just getting into I'm enjoying telling you all about this and uh, I can't... It's okay, we have all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please continue. Please continue. Oh, but the teacher might be tired, though. That's Sophia? He needs his rest. Because老师在讲到我们对身体的sensation像痛的时候,我们心没有参与的时候,它就不痛。所以我们在禅坐的时候,我们可以做到这一点。那我们禅坐的意义就是说,下了坐的之后,任何外来的任何的 身体痛的时候就是心没有参与嘛那我们在禅坐的时候我们接触到日常生活有很多的时候那种也可以把它当作是一个身体的时候我们也不参与的时候是不是这个时候就是无我它跟平者的不一样如果这是对的话那平者
<coughs> yes. So, um, so a person wouldn't be in, if a person understands the nature of not self. This person is extremely hard to uh, be insulted because he knows or she knows that he's both ugly and pretty all at the same time. And if somebody says that he's ugly, he's going to be offended. If somebody says he's pretty, he's not going to think it's something unusual. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's, um, where this all fits in. <coughs> you see, what, what maybe is beginning to emerge is that <coughs> our, our problems originate in our mind. We have a mental construct of, of self which uh, <clears throat> causes a lot of our, our suffering. And then we have the feeling of a, a self, and that feeling of self arises as a result of mental suffering and mental pleasure that are there. Okay? We examine reality, and we see that trying to manipulate the circumstances of the world in order to achieve uh, happiness and avoid suffering is not going to work. At the same time, we see that the real root of our suffering is the mental suffering, and the real source of happiness is likewise. So, if we can, if we, this is where we want to work. We want to give up trying to manipulate the world and instead, see how we can work with the mind. And that's the way that we can overcome suffering, and that's the way that we can find, that's the way that we can achieve the end of craving, and therefore enjoy the, the perfect satisfaction and, and happiness, the blissful happiness that comes from the end of craving. So the solution is within the mind. It starts to become more and more clear. Okay? Yes. Yes? Uh, um, so, um, so the combination of mental perception and with the body sensation, mm -hmm. um, so, so there, there's, this continu there's a continuity of um, rising, falling, rising, falling. And of sensations. Of yeah. sensations and and the mind projects that as some kind of continuality that because of that we have sense of self. So if so if we could actually see all the individual rising and falling, uh, whether it's mental or physical, then we could actually see that there is no self. That's right. You, we can add, we can not just through the things that you mentioned, but through a that plus a combination of other things, come to the point of saying that none of these things is real as a self. And by clearly seeing that, we lose the attachment and we lose the suffering that goes along with that. Let me put this in the context of the stages of enlightenment. Okay? An arhat, a Buddha, a fully enlightened being, is completely free from cravings of every kind. But there are four stages, and that's the fourth stage. In the first stage of enlightenment, a person 
has the experience of understanding the true nature of things. The result of which is that they permanently lose the belief and attachment in the personal self. That's this constructed view uh, that we can, without too much difficulty, see this personal self, this personality self, as a construct. But it doesn't change the fact that no matter that we sit and see that it's a construct, it's, we still behave and suffer as though it was real. Okay, what happens in the first stage of enlightenment is that is overcome. You have understood reality in such a way that it instantly destroys forever the belief in and attachment to that personal self. So you're no longer vulnerable to that in the same way. Wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this, the belief in and attachment to this self has been has been sustaining craving. And we have no hope of ever eliminating craving as long as we still believe in this self. And so now we've made, we've made a very important step for, forward. When you become a stream winner, a stream entrant, because now you, you've, you've seen the truth and you'll never again believe in this personal self as real. You still have craving, you still have desire and aversion. You haven't uprooted those, but you've eliminated an important part of its support. Now, when you experience pleasure and pain as a stream winner, you will still have some experience of the sense of self. You know, it'll still be my toe that hurts when you stand on it. Even though you know, you don't believe in that whole construct, you'll still have that feeling. But as as we pointed out, where does that feeling come from? That feeling comes from the mental pain that we suffer, not from the physical sensation that happened when you stepped on my toe. It comes from the mental pain, the mental suffering that was generated. Where did the mental suffering come from? The mental suffering came from craving. The aversion to the unpleasant physical sensation and the uh, craving to have the, the, the pain go away and the source of the pain go away. Now, the second stage of enlightenment is, is called the uh, once-returner. Okay. And what happens when somebody becomes a once-returner is that craving is greatly weakened, which means that there is not the same reaction of mental suffering to the physical pain that arises. There's much, much more equanimity to all sensation, and there's much less craving. And so the... Uh, Once returner is somebody who has tremendously attenuated the force of craving as a result of which the feeling of self associated with painful and pleasurable experiences is, is completely transparent. 
You know, not that it doesn't arise, but it it's seen through. It's not, you know, it doesn't have that same reality and believability. The third stage of enlightenment is called the non-returner. And what characterizes the non-returner, what makes that a distinct stage, is that craving, sensual craving, in other words, the desire for pleasure and the, uh, uh, and the aversion to pain, in its most subtle forms, has been completely destroyed. The non-returner has no craving related to sensual experience. No desire and aversion at the sensual level. So there is none of this, there is no longer any source for the feeling of self arising out of sentient experience of pleasure and pain. There is though one thing that's left, and we didn't talk about that, it's called the inherent sense of self. Even beyond the feeling of selfhood that arises in the presence of pleasure and pain, that notwithstanding, there is the sense of being a separately existing entity. This is the ultimate and deepest level of selfhood that we experience. Even when we're past all pleasure and pain, even when we no longer have a feeling of selfhood arising in response to sensual experience, there is still this sense that we are a, a separately existing being. And that is described in terms of the, the non-returner is said to completely overcome craving related to the senses, but has left one form of craving, the craving still for existence, and still has the inherent sense of self. These two go together. As long as you have this inherent sense that you are a separate existent being, there is the craving for that existence. Right? So that's Makes why sense. the first three still need to be born. That's right. Then why so specifically for seven times for the string winner? Why seven? Why seven? It's a lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, what the number seven means, okay, it, uh, you know, what is said is that they they don't necessarily have to be reborn at all, but they may be reborn seven times. And the meaning of that is they're not going to have to re- be reborn some huge number of times. But if they, don't, if they don't liberate themselves, they may have to go through this a few more turns of the wheel. So it's, it's another way... I, I, there's another way of understanding that that I will explain to you. Maybe, let me just continue on with just... The, the final thing. The final thing, when the non-returner becomes an arhat, then there is no longer that inherent sense of self as a separately existing being. And there is no longer the craving for existence in any form. And that's what makes an arhat an arhat. Okay? So these, do you see how these things are related? Uh, Craving, the sense of self, and uh, uh, the stages of enlightenment are all 
they're all linked together here. Yes. So is the arahat already lose the already cease the desire to to be alive? I mean, is that true that the arahat can be dead at any time that they have no desire to uh, continue their life? That's right. That's right. Yes. And it's uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, as he tells us. Uh, he said, after his enlightenment, Mara came to him. And you have to understand, Mara is a personification of what we might describe temptation. It's Mara is not a, a being that you can point to and pack on the back. It's Mara is inside. Mara arose and said to Buddha, you have no reason to stay in this world anymore. So, just go away. <laughs> go away. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, Brahma. <laughs> Brahma. Uh, well, yeah. Brahma played the 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the highest Brahma Deva played a role in this because um, the Buddha said, "Oh, this is this is too." This is too subtle. Nobody's ever going to understand this. There's no point in me trying to teach anybody this. And then, you know, the the, the Brahma came and said, uh, uh, oh, "Oh, blessed one, there are those with little dust in their eyes, and please, uh, please stay and please teach." Uh, anyway, so as a result of that, when Mara came and said, "You know, look, this, this, you don't have to do this anymore," <laughs> and uh, the Buddha said, oh, oh evil one, until uh, until there are bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and laymen and laywomen who have understood this dharma and practiced this dharma and mastered this dharma and can teach this dharma and have, can answer the challenge of others, I will not leave this world. Uh, what this is saying to us is it answers the question, it's a question people come up with, you know, why, why, why would a Buddha stay alive? You know, once, once you've achieved complete enlightenment, why do you get out of bed the next morning? And it is out of compassion. Um, and uh, so I can't leave you hanging there in that part of the story. I guess I have to tell you a little bit more. So, <laughs> when the Buddha loses when the Buddha loses this last vestige of self which is the inherent sense of being a separately existing being does that mean that there is some kind of annihilation takes place of the Buddha annihilation disappears no what disappears is the sense of separateness So what you could look at, one way you could look at what happens as a person follows the path of enlightenment is they start off saying, okay, this is self, and that's not self. And then they keep whittling away, saying, well, no, this is not self too, that's not self too, that's not self too, until finally there's nothing left but this last 
little wisp of separateness. But the nature of this whole process is, and, and you'll appreciate this, it's a boundary. Self and not self are separated by a boundary. When the last wisp disappears, there is no boundary, which means the Buddha is no longer separate from anything, from everything. So that's where the Buddha's compassion comes from. That's where a stream winner's compassion comes from, is because in the experience of seeing things as they really are, even though their mind is still so terribly conditioned in all of these ways by craving uh, and by the, uh, the sense of self, the inherent sense of self and so forth that still remains, all the habitual patterns of action and everything else that the stream winner has. Nevertheless, the stream winner has had the experience of non-separation and realizes that the truth, the ultimate truth of non-self is that is oneness, is the absolute oneness. Okay? Another way to understand this is we are all ultimately the same. The Buddha nature is the same in all of us, and it is in every sentient being. And if you remove all of the things that make us different, What's left is the sameness, the Buddha nature, which uh, these are my, this is my way of describing it and thinking about it. Uh, You may or may not agree or like this, but I'm talking to you about a truth that could be expressed in an incredible number of different ways, and they're all words, but pure consciousness. There is only one consciousness, ultimately. Not the dualistic consciousness of me being conscious of the, of, of the color uh, of this robe when I look at it. That's dualistic consciousness. Not the consciousness of the dualistic consciousness that I am the experiencer of my sense of self. But I'm talking about behind that. Behind both your experience of blueness when you look at the sky and your experience of, uh, of heat when you touch a hot object, behind every one of your sensory experiences and your mental experiences, there is a sameness, is there not? Is there not a certain sameness that is of the, the aspect of for better, lack of a better word, the conscious awareness that infuses the experience of knowing. And it's the same whether it's eye consciousness or whether it's touch consciousness or whether it's mind consciousness, whether it's smell consciousness. Is, is there not at the deepest level something that is the same? Okay. And can you not see that in the same way that there is a sameness that is independent of the different senses in your body, there is a sameness in 
all of our experience. Take, for example, pain. There is a sameness in the experience of pain in all sentient beings. But you, you're comparing um, sentient beings to sentient beings. What about um, non-sentient beings? Like rocks? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that one yet. I suspect <laughs> that I suspect in the ultimate unity of what is that those distinctions somehow fall away as well. But I don't, you know, I, I can't. That's that's. Ask me a few years. Okay, sure. Okay. I'll give you a year. <laughs> I'll give me a year. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's terrible. But uh, you know, whether you whether you agree with this philosophically or not. Can you entertain this idea that there's an ultimate level that the consciousness in all of us is the same? It's only one. It's absolutely, it's the same consciousness. Just manifesting in different ways. And so, when I come in contact with that in myself, and then I look at each of you, I see myself. I mean, I could say that I was Elaine in another lifetime. As a matter of fact, I'm seeing myself and I have the sense of myself as Elaine or as Tracy or as Ben. Or, I mean, there is only one. Okay? Now, if I see being suffering and we are all one, uh, I have a good reason not to check out yet, right? That's what gives rise to true compassion, the deepest compassion. Yes. As long as long as there is a separate sentient being in the universe that is experiencing suffering as a result of ignorance, rather than experiencing uh, the ultimate bliss of oneness, there's work to be done, right? So, what, what, sorry, I, have, I just really like to satisfy my curiosity. I apologize. Mm-hmm. So, so if all all condition all conditional things are impermanent, then even the people with like you know ten foot breaks on their eyes, they'll eventually be enlightened. Yeah. So, so we all have hope. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, right. That's right. All, 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 all living beings will be enlightened. Eventually. <laughs> but, but when you have a time, can you explain emptiness and the Buddha nature? Oh yes, I'd love to. Yes, please I, please uh, explain that. That guarantees it will go over time. Another occasion. What we've been talking about tonight is the emptiness of self. Okay. So, uh, and the uh, if if uh, if selflessness is the uh, is one of the most difficult. Uh, Dharma concepts to, to grasp. Uh, right up there, next to it, uh, is is emptiness because they're really, in a sense, they're, they're both they're they're both the same thing. There's emptiness of self and there's emptiness of everything else that we experience, and it's actually a little bit easier to understand the emptiness of everything else. The emptiness of self is is the hardest one. To uh, to grasp, and as a matter of fact, 
you won't really grasp it until you have the experience of nirvana, and then it'll be like, ah, oh, piece of cake. <laughs> so, so would you agree that uh, enlightenment is equal to this great uh, uh, compassion yes. and uh, loving kindness, yeah. and it's equal to emptiness, sure. uh, and and it's equal to Buddha nature? Would you agree? Um, well, uh, uh, okay, you're, you're stringing together a number of concepts which each has very specific meanings. They overlap, but to say that they're equal to... Now, that's, that's not true. They're, they're, because they, they are expressing different, uh, different things. But um, if the Buddha nature is a state of existence rather than non-existence in which there is no separation and total compassion. So in that case, Buddha nature is the same as compassion, okay? (laughs) But when we take when we say when we say the word Buddha nature, it also has specific meanings that are not included in the word compassion, and vice versa. Okay? But yes, these yes. If you mean you you mean all of these are, are really intricately connected to each other. Yes, they absolutely are. They're not just sort of associated with each other on the same page. They are woven in together. Yeah. The the reason I ask because there's a lot of compu- confusion between Buddha nature and the emptiness. So I would you. Would you explain to us when you have time? Sure, I will. I will. Yes, I'll be happy to do that. And then just the one thing that confuses a lot of people is they make emptiness into a thing, and emptiness is not a thing. <laughs> so you can say emptiness is the nature, is the ultimate true nature of anything and everything. So emptiness is the nature of uh, uh, the, the Buddha nature is has the nature of emptiness. So, so would you agree that uh, Buddha nature is nothing? It's not a thing. Buddha nature is not a thing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not nothing. It's not a thing. <laughs> As a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to understand. Yeah, all things exist in the mind. Then I have no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, now, now I understand. Yes? Okay, uh, two questions. Mm-hmm. One question is uh, before I ask what the question is, what the question is, what the question is, what the question is, what the question there is this expression, the most famous expression in the Diamond Sutra, uh, because we don't, we, we have a difficulty I'm, I'm to translate. That, 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 that sentence is no, 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 no,
Okay, so so you know what it is, but you have trouble translating. I know, I have to think about it. This is a normal attachment, and you you gotta have the Buddhism. No, 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 discover emptiness and uh, realizing emptiness you the, there there's no possibility of anything except impermanence so, so. I have a question uh, the Abhidharma and the yoga chara they are uh, looks like they, they are presented in a very uh, philosophical way um, but do you think they actually come from the actual experience? That they that the Abhidharma and Yogacara come from actual experience? I, I think I think the Yogacara teachings uh, are based in actual meditation experience. They are an intellectual interpretation of meditation experience. And uh, I believe that the that the that there is a certain problem with the uh, uh, Yogacara interpretation, which is precisely pinpointed by the Madhyamaka interpretation, but that the Prasangaka, uh, the the Rangtang, uh, the two Rangtang versions of Madhyamaka, the Prasangika, and uh, also the uh, Satrantika, are flawed. The Shentong is what I believe is the highest and clearest interpretation, which is a Yogacara Madhyamaka. So bet nobody understood a word of that except. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been we've been studying that in my study group back in the, in San Jose. It's so thick that they translate it to Chinese. It's this big. That how much? Yuxie Shi Di Ren. The, I have a question. The, the diamond... Uh, no, no, no. The, the, the yoga... Oh, the yogachara. Yogachara. Yeah, the yogachara. Yes. It's very, it is, it's very challenging. It's very difficult to, to understand. Yeah, so. How many books, sutras, do we need to read to get enlightened? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> this is an important question. Can we still answer? Can we just know the phone over? You don't need to read any books. <laughs> Free your mind. You're, you're serious, right? I'm don't serious. Yeah. You don't you don't need to read any books. Uh, they didn't have books in the Buddha's day. So we have so many sutras to study these days, and some people devote yeah. more time. Uh, you know that may be one of the things that keeps people from getting enlightened. <laughs> I agree with you, <laughs> especially Abhidharma <laughs> and the books. But, but, <laughs> but since you know all these. The, Abhidhamma, the other part of your question is whether the Abhidhamma was, whether I thought Abhidhamma was based on real... Especially history. Abhidhamma Sankara, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, explanation about different psychological mm-hmm. factors and uh, yeah. elements. 
Oh, it's too tedious. I hate it. <laughs> it, it is. I hate both. It's very. It is, <laughs> it is very challenging. I mean. Uh, I believe in the Abhidhamma you have uh, hugely more intellectual analysis overlaying any actual... I think, I think it has as its foundation experience. But I, I think it's hard to see the experience through all that overlay of intellectual analysis. I'm sorry, I, I know it's getting late. A very quick question. Um, <laughs> so much late. Oh, oh, still, I'm sorry, it's still way too early. <laughs> Um, I'd like to focus my practice uh, primarily on on meditation and just through observing um, the three marks in my daily life. And um, I, 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 a lot of times I, I find just reading is just kind of like a confirmation of what I understand. <laughs> I think it's much better to to understand something firsthand rather than secondhand. Yeah, yeah agree. The best, uh, I, you know, in, in my own my own personal path, I was presented with all sorts of texts to read by my teacher, my Dhammacharya, Jodi Dhamma, the the Sudhimaga and sutras and uh, various Mahayana texts, and you know, and I just found them just so tedious. But then I practiced, and then I'd have experiences in practice. You know, and he'd say, "Well, that's this. You know, go go, go to uh, this book uh, and, and this section there." And so most of most of my learning originally was, I'd go to the books to understand what I experienced and to get an idea of what to do next. You know, and that that's a really wonderful way to do it. The trouble is that, and, and as you'll see, is all these books on Buddhism, and they're written by people who read somebody else's book first, and they thought they understood what they were saying. And so they wrote another book about that, what they thought it was. <laughs> but they did... I, I, I tell you, I started out when I... Well, a few years ago, when I became... Uh, uh, when the idea first came that I would teach meditation, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, I can see there's people that that really would like to learn to meditate, and there's a lot of people that aren't having much luck with meditation. So I said, okay, well, I better read the books on meditation. I get these books, you know, there's somebody you go to Amazon.com or a bookstore, and all these books on meditation, and, oh, yeah, okay, and then, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> You know, and, We're and very I, fortunate to have a wonderful teacher like you, so we don't have to go through that well, difficult process. Well, well, <laughs> thank you, uh, and, and actually, that's that is the role that I want to play. I'd like yeah. to. Extraordinarily like to be helpful. The benefit of my experience and the way my experience, my understanding, of my own experience has been enormously enhanced by reading and study. You know. And as I say, you have an experience, and then if you go to a good source and you read, you know, and you understand it. But unfortunately, there's a lot of books out there written by people who only have, uh, they don't have the practice experience. They haven't done the things, and they're writing about things that they think they understand what it, it means, you know. And it's very confusing, and it would be very frustrating. Very frustrating. It's very wonderful that you're filtering all, you know, spending all that time filtering out 
All the best stuff they're telling us, all the best stuff. <laughs> Although the other thing I want to tell you, though, is that there are many... There, there are many different methods and many different interpretations and one of the things that uh, I have noticed is that uh, uh, to a greater or lesser degree a lot of them seem to work so you know uh, what I teach you is absolutely not the only way and there's other teachers whose way ways uh, also work but what I'll teach you is what I know and from my experience, my experience, my understanding that comes primarily from my experience and, and my what, what I have been able to enhance that with through reading and study. But please, I'm not saying that I know the only way, because there are other ways. Do you have a list of books that you 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 like personally that you could recommend for us to read? Uh, I've been thinking, I've had a number of people request that, and I'm going to make up a list of books. You know the way it is, is that if, if I were to take uh, make a list of, say, what I think are the ten best books, there's still about each of those, something I like better about one book than the other, and something I don't like about each book, and so forth. And that's what makes it difficult because, uh, well, maybe I should put it. If I take the hundred books that I have gotten something from, how do I pick the ten? Because, you know, I mean, there's no one book that I'd say, boy, this is, this, this is the one, forget the rest. <laughs> can, can you write a book yourself? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the teacher is in the process. Yeah, he's, he's writing his own book. Oh, that's wonderful. So we just read your book. Yeah, so we can save all the time and get enlightened this life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we like to De- definitely do that. De- definitely get enlightened in this life. I yeah. want to. I really want to. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's what I want you to do. So it's uh, it's pretty well Double. time for bed. I I I, I think you know, I cheated you of your <laughs> evening meditation. Yes. Let's go say if you want to. <laughs> Okay, I, I had trouble understanding <laughs> what you said there. Um, by not stay, no. uh, dwelling. By not dwelling. By not dwelling. Dwelling anything and seeing the the heart arises. Yeah. The story associates this one is the sixth picture of Curtis Bird and he uh, he liked it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I like it. It sounds uh, it's, uh, as a matter of fact, I think I've uh, I've heard it before. I'll tell you how I would understand this that dwelling on anything is the mind creating reality. 
And that's our whole problem. Our mind keeps creating reality. And because of that, we can't see uh, we can't see the ultimate nature of things because it's obscured. So by and, and that is the nature of the enlightenment experience. I mean, when you come to that experience of having uh, what what happens is the mind stops. The mind stops its doing. The mind stops its uh, its uh, clinging and craving and clinging. And once it stops, then uh, what was the last part of the phrase? The heart or the heart mind? Uh, yeah, I don't know how to translate in Chinese, but something arises. Is well, that's that's how hearing and now what comes to my mind, the way I relate to that, is it's describing that when you are able to 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 stop the constant process of a generation of dualistic reality by uh, by the mind, then you see the true nature of things. You understand the emptiness of things and the experience nirvana. <laughs> right. I got the message. <laughs> He's very compassionate. Does he ever do this any other time? Just keep no. going. No. Usually it's just it's testing you. <laughs> towards you. Yeah. <laughs> I think this thing has a mind of its own. Something that's required to let the teacher rest is a sign for the head. Okay. Just one teacher to rest. Okay. So yeah. I say it's yeah. great compassion. Right. Well, thank you very much. And I'm going to depart. And please consider if you would like to stay here and meditate. That would be great. But otherwise, I'll see you in the morning.